Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The recall election is set for September 14th, but registered voters are getting their mail-in ballots now. And the candidate who remains best poised to replace Governor Gavin Newsom should California voters approve the recall is Larry Elder. While he's a household name in right-wing talk radio circles, most Californians still know very little about him. But CalMatters' Ben Christopher sat down with him for an hour recently, and KQED's Marisa Lagos has been closely following the growing scrutiny on Elder. Welcome, Marisa. Hey, Mina. And welcome, Ben. Hello. So polls suggest more voters would pick Larry Elder over former San Diego mayor Kevin Faulkner or state assemblyman Kevin Kiley or businessman John Cox to replace Newsom if the recall prevails. So, so Ben Christopher, I guess I'll start with you since you just sat down with him. What did you learn? I mean, what are Larry Elder's core set of beliefs? Yeah, Larry Elder sat down with the the whole CalMatters reporting and editorial staff last week and um, He's, he describes himself as a, a libertarian with a small L. And what that means is that he has a libertarian philosophy. He's, he's a registered Republican, so he's not a member of the Libertarian Party. But certainly on economic issues, he believes taxes should be as low and simple as possible. He um, has said that he doesn't believe a, a minimum wage should exist. That's not actually part of his uh gubernatorial, gubernatorial uh, platform, but it's certainly a, a controversial thing that he said in the past that's gotten a lot of attention. He's he's very, very critical of public schooling, of the public sector unions in general, believes uh, a much larger role for charter schools and vouchers. Uh, he doesn't believe in in most public welfare programs. He doesn't think that they, um, they should exist. Um, but really, hmm. a lot of, I mean, he, he's been a, a, a conservative media personality for, for over 25 years. And, and he's really um, very vocal on issues of race, uh, extremely critical of, of affirmative action, of most more recently of, of uh, movements like Black Lives Matter, um, and basically of any claim that racism is still a major um, force that shapes American society. Um. Maurice, anything you would add to that in terms of what uh, his core set of beliefs are that are important for Californians to know? I mean, I know he's been outspoken about his opposition to environmental protection 
gun control and so on. I, I guess what I'm struck by is just how much what's been what Ben's describing just actually feels so incompatible with the majority of Californians views. Absolutely. Um, and I and I think there are a couple other sort of policy areas that are important to note because we are uh, still in the middle of a pandemic and Elder, um, as many of the Republican candidates, quite frankly, has also been pretty outspoken about his opposition to some of the statewide mandates around masking and vaccines. Uh, one question, I don't know if Ben got to ask him, um, but that I'm curious about, and we had hoped to have him on KQED the last two weeks in the row for political breakdown, but they canceled at the last minute both times, um, is would he then stand in the way of locals being able to institute their own mask mandates in schools, for example, kind of the, the fights we're seeing play out in Florida and Texas around this question of local control, which I think is more libertarian, but um, <laughs> kind of hard to tell. I think the other thing that struck me um, in the last week, I mean, uh, is is his is his position around sort of gender and women's rights. Um, there's two things here. One of them is a Politico piece Carlo Marinucci broke about a week ago in which uh, Larry Elder's former fiance accused him um, of essentially brandishing a gun at her during a disagreement and um, really sort of painted a picture of a very uh, a controlling sort of a boyfriend and fiance, somebody who demanded that she got a tattoo, sort of an ode to him. Um, and so that, of course, is concerning on, on a number of levels. But then there's been other comments he's made over the years around women and, and, and sort of gender parity, um, you know, indicating and he doubled down on this last week when asked by the AP that he absolutely believes it's within an employer's or say a venture capitalist right to know if a woman plans on having a family, uh, that he insists that, you know, women Women who do have kids um, are not necessarily as dedicated or productive. Um, some of these, you might say, well, it doesn't really matter because we have federal and state laws that protect against, say, discriminating against women. But I do think that a governor in California does have a fair amount of power um, and that these are, you know, as you said, things that likely a majority of Californians would not agree with. Um, and I think that just brings up this broader question, Mina, of like this recall and the fact that, you know, you could have 50 plus one vote to recall Newsom and then a very small percentage of the electorate choosing his replacement. Yes. And we should definitely get into the mechanics of recall uh, in a moment. But let me just invite listeners, if they have questions about Larry Elder that they'd like to ask Ben Christopher of CalMatters or Marisa Lagos of KQED, you can do that now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum. You can also share your impressions of Larry Elder if you have them as well or of the recall process generally. Ben Christopher, we were saying that, uh, yes, his views are not, you know, the way that when you survey Californians generally about how they feel about certain policy issues, they're not reflected there. But it also sounds like uh, establishment Republicans or that there are concerns among establishment Republicans about his views as well. One of them being, as Marisa mentioned, um, concerns about his views on women and statements he made that were derogatory toward them that Kevin Faulkner bought brought out. But can you talk a little bit about that and about his trajectory, why he has built this power base that has launched him to right now, at least the largest proportion of support of those candidates trying to replace Newsom? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, as you alluded to at, at the top, I mean, I, I think if if you've spent much time consuming um, conservative news and opinion media over the last few decades, 
Um, Larry Elder is a, a known quantity. He's, he's been very prolific. He's been on radio shows. He's been, made documentaries. He's made television shows. He's written a, a, a dozen books. Um, and so he's a, he's a very familiar character. And, and that is why, despite getting into the race, sort of at the last minute in mid-July, he was able to amass a, a pretty significant block of support um, just from the from the get-go, because he is such a known quantity among um, particularly GOP-based voters and conservative voters. And and again, as you've said, at least according to, to most recent polls, he is leading uh, the, is the leading candidate among all the re recall replacement candidates, meaning he has anywhere between 10 and 20, 25% of the vote. Um, but we have seen, particularly after this news surfaced that Marisa was talking about, about the allegations um, from his former fiance, which he has denied, um, you do see a bit more criticism coming from his fellow candidates who have, I guess, made the calculation that they can, um, at least initially when Elder entered the race, I think there was a lot of reticence among the Republican, his fellow Republicans in the race to criticize him because he is so popular. But certainly you've seen Kevin Falcon, the former mayor of San Diego, calling for him to step uh, to, to drop out of the race. You've also seen Caitlyn Jenner say the same. Mm -hmm. And so he's starting to, to be criticized. And also because he has um, so far, there are three going on four major debates so far, and he has skipped each one. And he's gotten some criticism from his fellow uh, Republican candidates for that as well. One of the things that I appreciated in, in your piece was how you asked about sort of what his, what his appointments would be like, who are the kinds of people that he would want around him. He talked about his judicial appointments being based on someone like a, a Justice Clarence Thomas, education being someone like Betsy DeVos. The other thing that I was really struck by in your piece was that he seemed to get most defensive about any questions related to his mentorship of former Trump advisor, uh, Stephen Miller. Do you know what was behind that? Yeah, it was uh, that was interesting. It kind of was surprised that he, um, he he took so much umbrage. But yes, yeah, so, so so oddly enough, sort of a, a, an interesting backstory that I was I wanted to find out more about is that Stephen Miller, this the, you know the former advisor and speechwriter to President Trump, who really helped craft um, that administration's policy, yeah. yeah travel ban and so forth. Um, so he he actually got his start as a as sort of a public person, his public persona by calling into Elder's radio show. Um, when when Stephen Miller was just a, a teenager at Santa Monica, Santa Monica High School, and he ended up um, calling in repeatedly throughout the years. And Jean Guerrero, the author of the book um, Hatemonger, which is obviously a very critical biography of Stephen Miller, um, she's written that Elder was almost like a mentor of sorts to Miller. Yeah. Um, and so I just asked Elder about that relationship because I wanted to explore that. Um, and he was very upset or rel relatively upset. He basically suggested that by bringing that up, I was accusing him of being a Nazi or a fascist, which obviously I didn't use any of those terms, but um, yes. I, th I think that does kind of give you a flavor, not just, we've been talking about his policy positions, which are perhaps outside the mainstream of California politics, but he's also got this very combative style, which I think he's honed as a, a, a talk radio per a personality. Well, we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for taking my call. 
So um, I'm listening to this in, in sheer horror, um, understanding more about this person who may actually have a shot at taking over our state. Um, I, like most people I think that I know, uh, followed the, the request from the Gavin, Gavin campaign to vote no on recall and not choose the second person. So now I'm second-guessing myself on that. That being said, um, what uh, this, this would be such a travesty, I think, and, and, and a, a so against the will of the people of California that my immediate reaction is we need to recall him then. So my question to you is, and I'm not into like the paralysis, you know, paralyzing politics here of this, but this, this, this is beyond the pale. Um, what would a what would a recall process look like? What would timeframes look like? I'm I'm sure we can mobilize people and mobilize signatures, but is that even a, a real uh, mm. objective? Assuming the worst that happens here, you mean to immediately recall. then try to recall Larry Elder if the yeah, if he happened day to be. one. Day one, get out there with petitions and signatures and, and start the recall process. Is there anything that would preclude us from doing that? Marisa? Time? <laughs> um, money? I mean, I, I think, like, at the end of the day, whether Newsom survives this or somebody else takes his place, the next governor is going to be elected next November. Um, I think you have to wait 90 days to institute a recall election on a, a sitting uh, public official, at least I know that's the law at the local level in California. Um, and then, you know, I just think you have to think about the the practicality of something like that. I mean, if you were given, you know, months to collect these signatures and then months to verify them, I mean, think about how long this recall process has taken. Um, I'm not sure that would be the most sort of effective way of, of stymieing a, a short-term governor because the truth is it, it just polling numbers wise, it's highly unlikely any of these candidates could beat Newsom in a head to head, right? And so um, a lot of those support for the recall polls around the same amount of support that John Cox, the Republican uh, challenger in 2018, got, which is around 38 or so percent. And so I think that, um, you know, for Democrats who are worried about this, their best hope is to get their friends to vote, first of all, and to beat the recall. And if that doesn't work, um, you know, to really be leaning on the legislature and others within government to put a check on that power, because, you know, we do have in California a super majority of Democrats in the state legislature. Uh, there's certainly a lot that a governor could do in a short period of time, but it's not a sort of an all powerful uh, position where they could just come in and do anything they wanted um, over the objections of a legislature that has the numbers in most cases to override veto. We're talking about Larry Elder, who could replace Governor Gavin Newsom if voters recall Newsom. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Jim writes, I believe it is very irresponsible that the Democratic Party does not have a plan B if Newsom gets recalled. Leaving the candidate blank is dangerous to our state. So who is a responsible person to select as Newsom's successor? There's a lot of things that Jim brings up there. Just just to remind folks of the mechanics of the recall, because I just don't think we can do it enough, Ben and Marisa. It's, it's that if more than half of California voters vote uh, to recall um the governor, the top vote getter of the second question of who should replace him will be governor. And that does not need to be a majority of voters, just a plurality. So Elder doesn't need to win a majority. He just needs to beat out the other Newsom opponents, whatever that margin is. And Ben, I know you've written quite a bit about whether the Democrats were smart here in the, you know, vote no on the recall and don't vote for anybody else. So do you think, as Jim does, that that was irresponsible? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. And, and and before I get into the sort of the strategy of it, I just want to be clear on one point, because I've gotten so many emails about this question. But 
um, including from some very uh, frustrated family members. So it's, <laughs> I know a lot of people <laughs> feel this way. But if you do vote no on the first question, if you do not want to recall the governor, that does not preclude you from from voting for the replacement candidate. So so you are still allowed to vote for replacement. It won't invalidate your no vote. So I just want to be totally clear about that. So as for the strategy here, yes, the, the governor and the Democratic Party has been really consistent saying just vote no, just vote no, leave the second question blank and send it in. And so I think, you know, why is that? So, so one um, rationale here is that A, you know, saying yes, uh, vote no, but also vote for this other person, that's a slightly confusing <laughs> messaging. And so they wanna just keep things very clear, but B, I think there's also a concern among um, the governor and, and his political strategists that it sends a message to voters that there is a possibility that if the governor is recalled, that, that that California could end up with someone who is acceptable. And that at least the thinking goes, um, that could encourage some voters who might not want to vote, who might not want a Republican to be the next governor to actually say, hey, you know, I'm not so happy with Newsom. I'll vote yes and vote for this Democrat who, or, or this, this other candidate who they say is, is just fine. And I think you know, there's a historical lesson here, which was back in 2003 during the last gubernatorial recall election, in fact, the only one that the state has had, um, a prominent Democrat Democrat did run, that was Cruz Bustamante, who is the, the Lieutenant Governor. He ran with the slogan, vote no on the recall, yes on Bustamante, a little confusing. And, you know, it's not clear how many voters would have voted no for the recall, but decided to vote yes because they liked the idea of a Governor Bustamante. But certainly a lot of um, mm. Democratic strategists from that time learned the lesson that Bustamante's bid kind of threw a wrench into the in, into the no on the recall campaign's messaging. And so they want to just keep it very simple and say, just vote no and send it back in. Well, Marisa, what we're hearing is that the fate of this recall election depends on turnout. The outcome likely hinges on turnout. Do you have any sense? I know it's really early. People are just getting um, the ballots in the mail about whether or not, for example, on Newsom's side, which seeds turn out as to their advantage that their messaging is actually getting some excitement or enthusiasm around this election. Yeah. Um we are seeing some very early returns since you know ballots did start going out a little over a week ago um it does look so far like there is a pretty significant number of democrats who have returned ballots more than republicans um you know it's a very small data point mina but it is interesting because in the past um We've kind of, I don't know, we've, we've sort of had an evolution over who tends to vote more quickly or um, more sort of uh, definitively through mail. And so 10 years ago, you would have expected it to be higher Republican returns to begin with. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that'll play out, right? Um, but I think that that is the message that Newsom and Democrats are really honing in on, which is just vote no because we think because we have the numbers on our side. And if you if you and your friends vote, this doesn't the second question is moot. So I do think that they are really working to drum up that support. We know on Friday Newsom's going to be appearing with Vice President Kamala Harris in the Bay Area for a campaign event. He's been making the rounds, um, and you know I, I think the question is not going to be obviously those regular voters that those diehard voters that always vote. It's the younger voters. It's people who maybe register more recently. Um, can they get that message out? And we'll just have to see. We will just have to see. And in the meantime, if he survives, Newsom survives and Elder does not win, there is some talk that Democratic voters or there's concern that uh, he does have some momentum and that he might not, that does not mean he will go away in 2022 either. So, so many things 
So many things up in the air and so much to watch. But as always, Marisa Lagos and Ben Christopher appreciate having both of you covering this and your analysis today. So thank you. Thanks, Mina. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. We'll, of course, be paying attention to this on Forum. And you've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.